0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well good evening. Good to see you all this evening. Our scripture text tonight is Psalm 97. Psalm 97. All right. So, Psalm 97, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks. To His holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be so, <clears throat> Christ's whole life was one of humiliation. The pre-existent, eternally begotten Son lowered Himself by taking on flesh, our flesh, and living among us, tempted like we are, but without sin. His humiliation culminated in his crucifixion and death. This morning, we heard about his humiliation, his physical abuse at the hands of a coward by the instigation of the Jews. But tonight, I want to set our minds on his exaltation, particularly his ascension. It seems to me, this doctrine of the ascension, this reality is not on our minds or is misunderstood. And because we do not think about it or understand it, we do not benefit from it, the reality that Jesus Christ is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. So Psalm 97 will help us to do this. This psalm is an enthronement psalm, meaning it describes the ruling and reigning of God over all things. God has all authority over his creation. He has always been the universal ruler and king over everything. He's the cosmic king and always has been. From creation and all throughout Israel's history, God has been the one who is reigning. But Psalm 97 describes more than just a general ruling and reigning of the triune God. It describes the specific reigning of Christ, which has been going on since his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The ascension of Jesus is a massive event the Son only ascended to the Father after having completed the work of redemption. This he accomplished by becoming man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son of God came to us and became one of us to redeem his people. And it was only after he finished his work as Savior that God highly exalted him, and gave him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. It was then at Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father that he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him, Christ was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, Daniel 7. And so now, Jesus is the cosmic king in the fullest sense. The Father, Son, and Spirit together are still reigning universally as God and always have been, even during Christ's time of humiliation. But now that Christ finished his work, Jesus, the son of David, especially is reigning as king. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Afterwards, he will hand over the kingdom to the Father, and then he himself, the Son, will be subjected to the Father, that God may be all in all. This is what Psalm 97 describes. Christ's current reigning. So it's in this way that the psalm is prophetic. When it was first given by the Holy Spirit, Christ had not been revealed. But now that he has been, and now that he is reigning from the right hand of the Father, we can see that the psalm is describing the reign of Christ. This was Calvin's view. Okay, we stand on good justification to think this way. We may infer accordingly that it, Psalm 97, contains a prediction of that kingdom of Christ which was erected upon the introduction of the gospel. And this is not inconsistent with the rest of the scriptures. The apostles constantly see Christ in the Old Testament. Just see how many times they quote Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 110 being the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And did not our Lord tell the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life? It is to these that testify about me. So let us now hear what Psalm 97 testifies about our ascended Lord. Verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. We just sang, rejoice the Lord is king. I meant to bring up one of those bulletins, but when you look through those lyrics, it All of what I just said is is written out clearly. All of it. He's reigning. The son has accomplished salvation. He who was humiliated, who lowered himself for the sake of his people, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried. This once lowly man, a Nazarene, is now highly exalted over all the earth. He reigns. None of his enemies can slap him now. No one can ridicule him and go unpunished. All of his enemies are put in check. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and to him alone. He is the king of kings. So what is our response to be? Rejoice. All the earth is to rejoice, even the remotest island in the Pacific Ocean that may not even have people on it. All the earth and its inhabitants are to rejoice. This is why we gather on the Lord's day. That's why we're here tonight. To worship him who is in the heavens. We come here publicly to worship Christ the Lord Almighty, who even though we have not seen him, we know he is reigning in heaven now. The world, our rulers, and neighbors may pay no attention to him, and his lordship and may openly mock him, but it doesn't change the fact that he is reigning. Now there are many reform men today who use the mantra Christ is Lord in order to get the civil authorities to rule according to God's word. On the surface, this may seem right, but it is their manner in which they do it that is not right. Instead of being respectful to our rulers, they belligerate. They act as if unbelievers are incapable of ruling them, and that if they, the Christians, were in charge, they would rule far better. This is arrogance. We must call our civil authorities to rule justly. In fact, that is what we just sang, Psalm 82. And Ben, I didn't tell you what psalms and songs to sing tonight, right? That just happened by chance. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Psalm 82, what did we just sing? It's calling judges of the earth to rule justly. It's not as though we shouldn't do this. Of course we're to do it. But it's the manner in which we do it that must be according to Scripture. We're not to belligerate. We're not to be arrogant. To think, I could do better than these men. We're to call on them to rule according to God's word. We're to call on them to submit to the Lord Jesus, but we can't be arrogant in the way we do it. And remember, God's command to honor the king is not invalid just because the ruler is wicked. The error of these men is that they act as if Christ is actually not really reigning unless the state is godly. But we are not to be so carnal as to live that way. We know he's reigning and that his kingdom will not end. It's dependent upon our current, it's not dependent upon our current political structures because it's not of this world. His throne is in heaven. Verse two, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The throne of the ascended Christ is no earthly throne. We see mysterious phenomena surrounding him, clouds and thick darkness. We don't see this stuff floating around the White House or Buckingham Palace or Columbia, South Carolina, but it surrounds our ascended Lord. Does this remind you of when God came to Mount Sinai? Exodus 19, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled like tornadoes and hurricanes, storms that come out of nowhere, which no man can stop. So there is a ferocity that surrounds the ascended Christ. And why? It's for the same reason at Mount Sinai that we may fear him. Remember, we have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And actually, the stakes are now higher, not lower. Listen to Hebrews 12 For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touch this mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. The intensity is amped up now that Christ is reigning from heaven. Do you feel the weight of that? All men are called to heed his warning, and it is not as though he is cruel. Look at what characterizes his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation. He's a just king, unlike the rulers of this world, who even at their best may fail us. He gets nothing wrong. He knows exactly how to judge every one of his subjects and every one of his enemies. And the psalmist doesn't stop here. Verses 3 through 5. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The psalmist describes now the return of our ascended Lord. There is coming a day when Christ will judge all men. He will come back just as he went up to the Father, and he will judge the world. He will burn up his adversaries. This is how Christ judges his enemies feel the awfulness of this jesus will actually kill his enemies and he has authority to cast them into hell if you recall the parable of the minas in luke 19 but these enemies of mine who did not want to reign who did not want me to reign over them bring them here and slay them in my presence it's intense Again, the reformed belligerators come to mind. These men who claim Christ as Lord do not want to wait for the Lord to judge his enemies. They want to judge our enemies now. Their minds are set solely upon the earth and our current state of affairs. It's not a mistake of Christ that we have the current administration that we have. It's not like this went by mistake on his part. Do we think that Christ has no idea what is going on in history? But the reason Christ has not judged the world yet is because he's patient. He's calling all men to repent. Verse 6 and 7, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Okay, the psalmist is now turning to general or special revelation as an appeal to idolaters to repent and worship Christ. I said it could be general or special revelation. He says, the heavens declare his righteousness. All the peoples have seen his glory. Creation, the visible world that we see and experience and live in, that is general revelation. It reveals to all of fallen man that the one true God exists. But what it doesn't do is save you. It doesn't tell you the way to salvation. It only condemns you. Special revelation, God's word, the message of Christ, Christ himself, the incarnate word, that is what we need to have a saving knowledge of God. It's more than enough to just damn us. It can actually save us. So what is the psalmist appealing to here? It would seem to me that he's describing the gospel, special revelation, and not general revelation, not just creation. Listen to what Calvin says on this. Follow along with me. Here he states that there would be such an illustrious display of the righteousness of God that the heavens themselves would herald it. The meaning is not the same as in the beginning of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. In that psalm, David means no more than than that the wisdom and power of God are as conspicuous in the fabric of the heavens as if God should assert them with an audible voice. The meaning of the passage before us is the spiritual righteousness of God should be so signally manifested, get this, under the reign of Christ as to fill both heaven and earth. There is much force in this personification in which the heavens, as if even they were penetrated with a sense of the righteousness of God, are represented as speaking of it. It is equally probable, however, that the heavens signify here the angels who are contained in heaven. The angels may very properly be said to announce and celebrate the divine glory. What's Calvin saying? He's saying... That the psalmist is saying that this is special revelation. Since Christ has ascended on high, the angels are declaring his glory, right? The heavens are declaring his righteousness. All the peoples have seen his glory. This is describing the gospel going out to all the ends of the earth so that all men can hear that Christ is reigning. The ascended Lord is being worshiped today, and it is for this reason idolaters are called to repent. This is the task that we, the church, today, while we wait for our Lord's return, must complete. It's to call men to repentance. This is one of our main tasks, is to call men out of darkness, to forsake their idols. Until Christ comes back, this work never stops and so we count the patience of our Lord as salvation, as 2 Peter 3 says. Christ has not returned yet because there are more people that need to come to a saving knowledge of him. Make, we must make good use of our time on this earth. Verse 8 and 9 Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. What did we just sing in Psalm 82? Worship him, all you gods, right? Here the church is described. Zion and the daughters of Judah are those who love Christ. It is only those who are glad, who rejoice in the judgments of Christ that make up the people of God. Do we rejoice in Christ's judgments today, right now? Or are we ashamed of his standards, of his law, his rules? Do we love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates? This is what verse 10 calls us to do hate evil. You who love the Lord, hate evil. We live in a world that despises the ascended Lord, its king. The world hates Christ's lordship, and so it mocks him and despises his people. And Christ knows his people's weakness in this. He knows we are tempted to sin. We're tempted to to forsake him, he knows we're constantly tempted to love the world and its wickedness. To deny even Christ before men because we fear the, Lord, the world. So Christ commands us, hate evil. And why should we hate evil? I mean, it should be obvious, right? We're to hate evil because it's evil. But more than that, it's, it was for sin that Christ died. If we love Christ, then we will hate what he hates. Literally, verse 10 says, Hate evil, you lovers of the Lord. If we are lovers of Christ, then our lives will show it. Men, we must lead in this. Do your children know that you love God? Do they know where you stand regarding sin? Men, we must show our affections. We must not be ashamed to call sin what it is and to hate it. To exhort our young people and those under us to hate sin. We must lead in showing our love for the Lord of glory. Show your affections. Show it to your coworkers. Show it to those around you, to your neighbors. Your families. Now, the world will hate us if we love Christ, but this must not worry us. Jesus promises that he will preserve the souls of his godly ones. Back in verse 10, who preserves the souls of his godly ones? He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Because Christ was resurrected and ascended, He now has all authority, even over death itself. Revelation 1, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Christ's kingship is for our benefit. In the words of Calvin, the kingship of Jesus Christ is for us. He he was eternally begotten of the Father. He had all things with God before he came and took on flesh. He doesn't need to be king except for the fact that it's for our benefit. We may undergo serious trials and suffering during our short stay on earth. Our health may go away. Our wealth may be deprived. But our souls will be preserved. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day. The Christian is safely kept in the hands of the ascended Christ, and no one can take us away from him. He rescues his people from the hand of the wicked. If we belong to Christ, then we are his friends, his brothers, his people. This means his enemies become our enemies, and our enemies Become his enemies. They may deride us. They may seek us harm. They may even do some physical harm. But ultimately, it will not matter. Jesus will rescue his people and will punish the wicked. Do you believe this? Don't be like the belligerators who are too narrowly minded, obsessing over civil freedoms, rather than resting in tranquil confidence knowing that their Savior is the King of kings. You know, when your mind is so set upon the earth, every small thing, or even everything that seems big, it just consumes you. we got to have perspective. Finally, verse 11 and 12, light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Our ascended king who is shrouded in darkness gives light to his people. That is to say, he gives them joy and gladness. Verse 11 is our indicative. It tells us what the facts are. Light is sown for the righteous, gladness for the upright in heart. Verse 12, though, is the imperative. Since light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart, since you have that, what are you to do? Be glad in the Lord. Give thanks to his holy name. True joy in the Lord is the hidden secret to a well-lived life. If you want to live a life that has great meaning, that it takes away stress from your day-to-day living, then you have to be joyful. I mean, I fail in this all the time. To be glad in the Lord means we find our greatest delight in the one person who no one can take away. Physical things and people can be taken away. Our food, our entertainments, our homes, our spouse, our children, our church family, All of these things are subject to change and to separation. But Christ can never be taken from the righteous. You cannot lose him. Jesus is ours, and he never changes. Our father and mother may forsake us, but the Lord will take us up. And so we're to give thanks to his holy name. Give thanks to the name that is above every name. Let us thank him for the mercy he's shown us. Let us thank him for humbling himself to save sinners. Let us thank him for suffering under Pontius Pilate, for being crucified, dead, and buried. Let us thank him and worship him for who he is, the exalted savior, the king of kings, knowing one day we shall be with him, body and soul, forever. Isn't that good? Don't you want to praise God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't we want to give thanks to him? Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for sending your Son, who took on flesh, who is tempted like as we are, yet without sin. No one looked on him and saw who he really was, the King of kings. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering, for dying, for entering into your creation, only to be hated and spat upon by it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you now sit at the right hand of your Father, and that you now have the name above every name. We pray, Father, help us to see your Son for who he is and to give thanks to his name for what he's done. In the blessed name of Christ we pray. Amen.